This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Adrian Ray Brown. If you can imagine ourselves as a community, as opposed to a bunch of individuals trying to survive these conditions, it's like actually we're a community trying together to survive these conditions. And even that kind of a small shift of of identity can transform what's possible. So new stories uh, lead to new actions, new possibilities. Adrienne Marie Brown is the writer-in-residence at the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute and author of Grievers, the first novella in a trilogy on the Black Dawn imprint, Holding Change, the Way of Emergent Strategy Facilitation and Mediation, We Will Not Cancel Us, and Other Dreams of Transformative Justice, Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds, and the co-editor of Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction from Social Justice Movements, and How to Get Stupid White Men Out of Office. She is the co-host of the How to Survive the End of the World, Octavia's Parables, and Emergent Strategy podcasts. Adrian is rooted in Detroit. Oh, well, Adrian. Thank you so much for joining us here again. The For the Wild community has been so lucky to have learned from you over the years, and I'm just excited to be back here with you and connecting. Thanks for having me on again, Lana. So I wanted to just jump right in and start with an introduction to a more recent project you've been working on, Imagine Mm -hmm. 2200. That's even hard for me to say. I'm like, wait, what? But um, imagine 2200 (laughs) fixes climate fiction contest, which recognizes stories that envision the next 180 years of equitable climate progress, imagining intersectional worlds of abundance, adaptation, reform, and hope. And I just love if you could give us some insight into the project and what drew you to it. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, um, for a long time, I've been really into the work of visionary fiction and how we write stories. You know, Walida E. Marisha and I did Octavia's Brood years ago, and the bent of it was how do we tell stories that sort of activate our imagination of the future 
in ways that feel compelling, right? Like ways that are like, oh, I, I would like to go to there, <laughs> like to be a part of that. So um, when I got this invitation from Grist to, to be one of the judges for this incredible climate fiction contest, um, you know, I jumped at the chance and I got to work with a lot of other people, um, incredible judges, Morgan Jerkins, Sheree Renee Thomas, Casey Lehman, um, to sort of sit and read through really groundbreaking work. And the idea is if we can envision the world, the world ahead of us together, we can start to share from these dreams that we're having, that we might actually be able to increase our chances of living on a planet that feels viable to more and more of us. Um, and I really loved getting to read the stories. Um, a ton of stories came in. I think something like um, a thousand people, 1100 people or something submitted stories. And, you know, it got narrowed down for us. So we read like the top 20 stories or something that just knowing that that many people are holding pieces of the future um, gave me a sense of, of hope and possibility. That sounds like a really beautiful way to spend time is to go into other folks' imaginations. And uh, gosh, this is something that I've thought about so much with our past conversations that's come mm -hmm. up again and again in my organizing work. And just my own personal work around hope and okay. seeing through the overwhelm and anxiety of this time. And I don't want to misquote you, but this idea of the imagination battle and how we're living in other people's imaginations. That oh, yeah. We didn't even well, you know, that actually, that idea was from a friend of mine named Terry Marshall, who works with intelligent mischief. And I remember sitting in a room in Boston, uh, they were doing a training, like a panel training there. And I remember Terry talking about this, like that we're in this imagination battle. And the idea was so clear to me, right? Like, I was just like, I understand exactly what you mean. Someone envisioned and imagined the world being the way it is now and the way that we can take for granted. Right, that it can just be like, oh, white supremacy has always been here, and that's just how white people are, you know. And it's like, actually, no, someone constructed that. Someone looked at the world and and the way resources move through the world, and thought it would be really strategic if if we declared white people as some kind of superior species. You know, we would be able to take and 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 move and trade and do everything just for ourselves, you know? So uh, I'm like, for a lot of us, especially those of us who are not white, we look at that and it's like, how, how you know? In what realm, in what world is there a superiority here? There's not, it's imagined. And if that can be imagined, anything can be imagined, right? And so then we start to say, well, what would it look like to actually imagine a world that meets the needs of its people? and a world in which people don't have to be born into a certain race or class background in order to have access to healthcare, in order to have access to a healthy environment, in order to have access to education and all those basic human needs, you know? 
um, so much of, of the science fictional behavior that Walida and I have always kind of pushed people towards is like, it's not, you know, it's not about being the most bombastic, you know, <laughs> like it's really like we're talking about basic human needs here. And what would it look like to get to get to a place where that felt like the primary um, focal point and the primary reason for the decisions that we made as a collective species? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this thread is so fascinating to me because mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot of organizing work in Southeast Alaska around well, one particular mine for the last nine months. Well, it's a series of mines, but it's under uh-huh, one corporation. Uh-huh. And they are planning on drilling a mile long tunnel into a glacier. And no. I'm just uh. like, well, okay, we're talking no. about some strange <laughs> yeah. dystopian sci-fi imagination. This is that. How can some folks think that drilling into a glacier in climate chaos is possible, but those of us who are struggling to even imagine that a community garden is possible, and just to see the discrepancy in that, those who think they're in power and who are controlling a lot of the reins of how the resources are extracted from this earth can have these wild imaginations to do just Mm -hmm. things that seem completely impossible yet somehow they get the investors to back them and their imaginations can be manifested Mm -hmm. so i guess i just want to hear you speak to those of us who are in our communities and feeling maybe a little downtrodden that the the things that we want to imagine like you're saying healthcare and and food and safety that those things sometimes can feel unreachable Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think this has been a really tender time. I know that it has felt that way for me, um, wanting the species to be so much more self-aware and self-reflective and to have a sense of like, oh, we're the stewards, you know, we're responsible for some of what's happening on this planet. How do we, how do we be responsible in a good way? How do we take that responsibility in a way that, you know, future generations can look back and they're like, wow, <laughs> you know, y'all really turned something around here. Um, I think that part of the tenderness of this time is recognizing that a lot of the people who can make decisions about, um, about the direction that things are going in are not driven by the same values and not driven by the same beliefs, right? Um, and maybe even not driven by the same sense of urgency, you know, like what I hear some, you know, like someone's going to drill. I'm like, we're past that point, <laughs> you know, like we're past being able to act as if we don't understand the impact of such drilling. Um, we're in a new phase of our, of our planetary self-awareness. And when will our decisions start to reflect that? You know, I'm, I'm hungry for that moment when our decisions start to really reflect that we understand we have an impact on this planet. I've been listening to this book, A Brief History of Earth. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's, um, you know, I go through my little audiobook phases. But part of it is like, how do we make people understand just how magnificent and unique and special and spectacular our planet is? And 
some of us are really on that vibe, <laughs> you know, that's just like, maybe if you understood just how miraculous and unique it is, you know, that would make, that would make people feel more hopeful, but it doesn't. And so for, for me, I know that the thing that happens when I realize that is I feel this overwhelming despair and I've been sitting with that despair more often recently of just like, okay, what is this despair here to teach me? How can I lean into this feeling? And what I realize is that when I'm feeling that, that despair, that hopelessness, in some ways, I'm really feeling the most connected feeling I can have on the planet right now, right? That it's like, I'm not just feeling um, a selfish, uh, you know, a selfish, like, I just want to live for as long as I can. There's a real interconnected um, energy that I feel flowing through me that's like, I can feel myself connected to the generations to come and I can feel their disappointment and I can feel their innovations. Um, and that gives me a sense of peace, a sense of, of hopefulness that we're not the first people to try to turn this thing around. We won't be the last to try to turn this thing around. Um, there's not a quick solution, actually. There's many, many solutions and many, many experiments. And the way, you know, as a U.S. citizen, the way that things are playing out here is not the only way the species are figuring out and answering these questions. So all of that gives me some hope. And then there's a book that came out this year from Dean Spade um, called Mutual Aid. And the way that even during this immense overwhelming crisis, um, much of which feels spurned on by our inability to make decisions with a collective orientation. Even during this time, there have been people practicing, like learning to practice mutual aid. And that, that maybe more than any other thing gives me a lot of hope uh, that it's like, okay, like people could be spending their time on a lot of different things. And the thing that you know, a good number of people are actually putting their, their energy into is how do I think collectively? How do I give from what I have enough of? How do I be in a relationship with other people that's not rooted in scarcity? And I'm practicing this very personally right now. You know, that I'm like, okay, like how in my community, how do, how do my partner and I, how do my siblings and I, my family and I, my friends and I, how do we think of our resources collectively? How do we make sure that everyone has enough time, money, childcare, healthcare? How do we make sure we have everything we need? And being in that activity brings my attention to the realm at which I can touch and feel the people I'm caring for. And I find that to be really helpful. Like when I get overwhelmed with despair, it's usually because I have my attention on everything in the entire world. <laughs> and I can't. I can't take action on every single thing in the entire world. In fact, I can get very inactive. You know, I can get very overwhelmed and then nothing happens. Um, so I've been in a practice of like, okay, not, you know, it's like all of this is true. This is, we are in a climate catastrophe. All of this is unfolding, but there's also a lot of good unfolding. And what can I bring my attention to? What can I grow with my attention? And what can I grow with my practice? So that that's kind of the vibe I'm in right now. Mm. Mm. Oh, that was medicinal to hear that. Mm. So many pieces of that, the mutual aid, but also just when you're speaking to um, 
you know, we're not the first, we're not the last and people all over the world are working through it. And we have so little knowledge of the 7 billion people. And I think that there's a lot of release in that, that I'm hearing, at least for myself, because it's like letting go of the pressure of trying to figure it all out because we can't. And I do think that when we get too big in our anxiety to fix or save the world, we actually can't really focus on what we have real possibility with, which is those around us, those we are connected mm-hmm. to. And and maybe that's even part of the design of this time of the sinister ones, just trying to jumble us a bit so that we feel too overwhelmed. Like I, I think about that even with the media and news, just, just too much. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we can't I think focus. about this all the time. I think about this all the time. Like I'm, I'm frequently, you know, getting off of social media, um, you know, taking breaks from it, um, dosing myself with that addictive substance, you know, um, and recognizing like my attention is really the most valuable thing that I have that I can offer to the world. And capitalism really benefits from our distraction, right? Um, All the forces that keep us kind of asleep and consuming really benefit from us staying asleep. And, you know, but there's, there's always something happening. There's always people trying. There's always people envisioning the world anew. And, you know, this is part of why I, the fiction contest for me was really interesting because it, they're, you know, the stories are not just like, and then everything was great, <laughs> you know, um, like people are really being very rational, even in their imagination, right? It's like, okay, like, what are the basic needs that we need to attend to? How do we be visionary about that? And if we can already imagine what it would look like in the best case scenario, how do we bring that into our daily lives now? You know, what does that look like? And I think that sometimes it's, it can be really scary for people to shift from panic to practice, right? I'm just like, oh my God, you know, there's just like, it's a total crisis and there's nothing to be done. And it's like, well, what are you practicing, right? If you practice every day panicking and surrendering your power to the 24-hour news cycle, then yeah, it's not going to feel like a very hopeful time. (laughs) You know, you're not generating a field of, of possibility. That's for sure, right? But if you if you then for me, you know, I find that I'm like, okay, when I feel that despair and that overwhelm, who can I turn to? Who can really help me hear a different possibility, even in this moment? Who am I who am I giving my attention to? I ask this question to myself all the time, like an annoying amount, you know, as I'm just like, well, who's getting this attention? And do they deserve this attention from me? You know, like, are they, um, am I actually entertained? Am I actually intrigued? Do I feel like my humanity is witnessed? You know, who do I want to give my attention to? And it, it's changed a lot. I, I spend very little time reading the news. I spend a ton of time reading visionary fiction. I spend a ton of time thinking through, you know, like once I read, you know, some something from Octavia that I'm like, well, what would it take to practice this? You know, how would we create spaces where people could practice this? 
And sometimes the practice is just reading together, you know, um, reading and being like, well, what do we think of that? You know, I, I often will tell people like we're in this age of abolition and trying to figure out what justice looks like. And like read Woman on the Edge of Time. It's really, really helpful to read it and think about what kind of punishment um, what kind of punishment are we currently engaging in and, and how would we break into a different relationship with each other that wasn't punitive? You know, uh, like, I, I'm just like, there's fiction. People have written about all these things. And by asking the question, like, could you live in this world? How about this one over here? What if it was like this? You know, asking ourselves allows us to start to get in the practice of creating worlds that we could actually live in and feel justice in. That's to me what we're supposed to be doing. Right, we're constantly supposed to be experimenting with, well, if this isn't working, what could work? Could that work? <laughs> you know, there's got to be a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think speaking of the value of attention and presence, I've noticed that so strongly, especially since COVID started, how valuable and precious presence is to me. And how much I want to give my presence to those around me, my loved ones, and how much yeah. I want to receive that. And and then I think with a, attention, there was an interview I did a few years ago. And I think one of the quotes was, um, and this was from Swartz, and he said something like, attention is the most valuable currency in the universe. And oh, yeah. I really sat with that. I was like, wow, we've really been duped. <laughs> thinking that like other things are more valuable than that that other things are more valuable than spooning or looking into each other's eyes mm -hmm. or sharing a meal mm -hmm. like where else are we trying to go uh, what, what what else is better than that and yeah I really appreciate that reminder to come back mm -hmm. to source in that way because that's like another form of that distraction that I think you're speaking to and just to jump back to practicing imagination and practicing yeah. this type of visionary fiction. Maybe you could share with folks how they might begin to practice this in their own lives, whether that's oh, yeah. just by themselves or within their community, maybe other folks who want to feel that type of support. But I think yeah. that could be helpful to hear. Well, one thing that we did, um, Walida and I, Walida Irisha and I, when we were touring Octavia's Brood, was we would do these collective science fiction writing workshops where we would get people together in community and we would ask them, you know, where in your community, what wound in your community, what pattern in your community could use some visionary attention, right? And you know, it changed from place to place, but in most places there was, you know, some element of like our education system could really use some medicine, like it could really use some vision. Um, our healthcare system could really use this, our housing system could really use this. Like folks quickly came up with things that were like this area of our collective lives could really use a different kind of attention, a healing attention. So we would start there and we were always blown away by how quickly people would move into, you know, be like, okay, so build a world, you know, <laughs> build a world and what are all the needs? What are the needs that are being met? What is the conflict, you know, inside of that world? Because 
so much of the conflict we experience now comes from people not having their needs met and trying to find ways to meet those needs um, when the state and the system actually don't provide in the way that they need to, right? So then we're like, okay, well, what would it look like if all those needs were provided for? How would we provide <laughs> all those needs? You know, um, I always, one of my pet peeves is, you know, having um, critiques, but not having any idea of, of what an alternate solution could even look like. And it's one of the main reasons I love visionary fiction in general. But get people together, what is the medicine you need and have people be in a real conversation about that. You know, it's like, here's what we need. Here's how it could look to practice it, you know. And once people start having those conversations with each other, a lot will unfold or unveil from that place. Um, sometimes we'll go so far as to explicitly say, okay, so if we're trying to end up there, where do we need to start, <laughs> you know? How would we, what was the first step that we might take locally in order to move in that direction? And every single thing, all the decisions that we live inside of every day, when we start to track them, pay attention to them, almost all of us can easily see differences, changes. Like, oh, here's, here's one thing we could do that would yield different results. And that's the sweet spot to me. That's where we want to be is what are things that we could imagine would actually have a tangible different outcome and and then you know how do we become the people who are willing to to be in that practice so I've done this with folks um you know I've done this with folks like in New Orleans where some of the work of visioning survival together actually was able to help in terms of how survival happened during the next hurricane <laughs> you know it's like if you can imagine ourselves as a community as opposed to a bunch of individuals trying to survive these conditions. It's like actually we're a community trying together to survive these conditions. And even that kind of a small shift of, of identity can transform what's possible. So new stories uh, lead to new actions, new possibilities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for sharing some time with us today and yeah, awakening these rumblings in us. As we close, I want to bring back up, imagine 2200. 2200. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and just see if there's any anything else you want to touch on before we say goodbye or how people can learn more about this contest and where they can potentially read any of these works. Yeah, well, you know, I can send you the link to drop in the show notes of all the stuff that is published already. We're actually going to be publishing a book of the winning stories. Um, the winning stories and the finalists are going to be published. And they just opened. So there's actually a submission portal. We're doing another year of the contest. Um, so this year's judges are Cherie Renee Thomas, Arcadie Martine, and Grace Dillon. And I think the deadline for that is May 5th, 2022. So people should write their stories and get those into us so that they can read more and you know that we can find out more about the clues that people have in their imaginations for what this next 180 years of survival looks like. Awesome. Thanks so much. Well, we'll definitely share yeah. it. Yeah. I hope you have a beautiful rest of the day. Really lovely to connect. 
You too, sweetie. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye. bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Wild Podcast. The music you heard today is by Nia Simone and The Mysterious They. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Ali Constantine, Erica Ekram, Emily Guerra, Julia Jackson, and Melanie Younger.